Let's get going now. New survey data. 85% employed respondents are considering or have quitting in six months. Tom Gimbel joins us now, the founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. What do you make of that, Tom? Are you surprised? No, I'm not surprised. We, we, we intentionally left it left it a little bit vague from the standpoint of would you consider quitting in the next six months and not for any particular reason, not for tenure, not for, for compensation. And I think we, we live in a world right now where people are very concerned about will their company's mandate coming back to work, um, you know, the, the geopolitical climate, people are, are, are torn in between these two worlds we live in just in, in this country. And then you get the situation with inflation and people, whether it's affecting them or not, um, people watch it on TV and hear about it on the news and social media, and they're very worried about whether they'll be able to afford where they live, their car, their gas, and so on and so forth. So the numbers don't don't surprise me with the way the media is these days and what we what we pay focus on. Is uh, an issue for people the mandate to come back two, three, four days a week? I mean, is that the sort of thing that if some employees heard that they'd go look elsewhere? Well, I think what would happen is, and I was just with a, a group of 25 CEOs um, the other day from around the country, and we were talking about this topic. And I think that there's probably, on the average company of over 100 employees, is how I sliced up the data, and I think that, that you'd probably have about 20% of the workforce would consider leaving for if, if companies that were remote went back into the office. But I think that they look around and realize that there aren't a lot of fully remote options out there anymore. And so I think that it's more of the air quotes, John. You've got to see me doing the air quotes. Okay. The entitled employee base it has to get used to things being not what they want, but what, what the company believes is, is what should happen. Well, what do those CEOs say about that? Are they angry? Um, do they feel like they're missing some productivity or some possibilities yeah. because people aren't there? They must be frustrated. Correct. They're, they're sitting there saying, listen, our, our, our year didn't, you know, 2021 grew at an unbelievable year because 2020 was an aberration and, and ridiculously low because for a quarter of the year, production hit almost zero in a lot of industries. So 2021 was really great. 2022 for the first three quarters of the year was really great. The fourth quarter of last year started to decline. And then you look at what's going on and you see that productivity for most employees, they want to say it's better, but, but it isn't. Um, and, and it isn't because we're not, we're seeing it with the layoffs. We're seeing it with company growth, not equating to the number of people that you hire. And, and that's, you know, if a company hires 10% more people, they're not expecting to grow revenue just at 10%. They're expecting this exponential growth. There's some business 101 stuff here that people don't think about. They think about, well, listen, I'm more productive at home, so everybody should be remote. And unfortunately, that's not the way the world works, is that while it may not benefit uh, the individual, you have to do what's best for the entire company. Well, last question, Tom, then. So what's your advice to CEOs, uh, employees or employers for that matter? I mean, what should they do about the ability or willingness for people to leave their jobs? So I think the number one thing you have to do is, is look at, the, at, the, at the, the problem itself and not the symptoms. And the problems are 
um, what's the company's core, like if, for a CEO and a management team, what's the company's core business? What's the core mission of what they do and how do they believe people should be treated? And make sure that you're doing all of those things with laser-like focus. And for the employee, I think it's to look at and say, do you rank, rank what's really important for you. What, what is the definition of career happiness? Not life happiness, because you've got to be responsible for that. But in your career, is it who you work with? Is it what you do? And then is it where you work? Because if it's where you work, I don't think that's necessarily people being truthful. Because I could work right next door to my house. And if I was doing a job I hated, I wouldn't be career happy. And so you really got to think about what your skills are and what you want to do, and then really give it 100%. And you'd be surprised of, of how, what you're willing to put up with when you're really finding career satisfaction. Mm. That's Tom Gimble, founder and CEO, LaSalle Network, thelasallenetwork.com. Okay, Tom, we'll talk next week. Thanks for your thoughts. Hey, J- John, you, you didn't ask me to be your Valentine's. No, I did not, Tom. That shouldn't surprise you. Fair enough. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> hey, you have a good day, my friend. My, my best to you and yours. Uh, we're friends. Sometimes we don't agree on things. But he's the expert. So, too, is Philip Weiss, by the way. And speaking of employees... Philip says that maybe we should consider hiring people who don't have the college degree that normally goes with that occupation. Let's pick it up here next on the Wintrust Business Lunch. There's Philip Weiss, president of SciFarth at work. Philip, what are we saying about a college degree is a necessary thing for certain jobs these days? Yeah, uh, the college degree is uh, losing some of its sheen, so to speak. A lot of market leaders uh, have been uh, taking a hard look at whether a four-year degree is truly essential for many of the roles they're trying to fill. And the answer they're coming up with is, frankly, no. Uh, and just a couple weeks ago, the entire state of Pennsylvania looked at its job listings and said, we're going to eliminate college degree requirements from 90% of those jobs. That's 65,000 more jobs just in the state government that now people who did not finish four years of college can apply for. So it's a trend that started a year and a half ago and is really gaining steam. Is that because the jobs, in fact, don't require it or simply because that's a way to more easily fill the ranks? Yeah, that's a great question. And and looking at this from like a strictly uh, legal standpoint, uh, not that many jobs absolutely require a college, four-year college degree. They're typically the ones that have some advanced certification, licensing, doctor, lawyer, dentist, etc. The rest of those jobs that have had the college degree requirement for decades, it's really been a default sort of a default setting for many employers. There was a comfort level, John, at having people come in who had gone through the college years. There was a view that they might be more mature, more responsible, better communicators. What employers are finding now is that's quite often not the case. And people can get skills, can acquire skills in a myriad number of ways, and employers get a far more robust, creative, and even diverse workforce by opening the gates. I understand that, and I believe that. But I don't want to discount the value of a two- or four-year degree. There's a lot to be learned there. I mean, literally learned there, right? Yes, and that's something that employers should be looking at. You mentioned a two-year degree or an associate's degree or a community college degree. Many employers are still looking 
to those educational environments and other programs to draw from. So it's not as though college is automatically bad, uh, far from it. It's about taking another look at which jobs will really benefit from the college degree and then asking the question, why? Why are we making that a requirement for this job? And is that going to serve our purposes? Tell me some jobs. Give me some examples of positions where, in second thought, you don't have to graduate with $35,000 in debt and a college degree to do this. Most of the training is going to be on the job. We just need good people. What's an an example of that? Yeah, and I think you're you're really honing in on one part of your question there that's so important, which is the the when does the training really occur? When does the maturation occur in terms of developing oneself? Pilots, really interesting example. Um, some of the major airlines are now saying it's not about a college degree; it's about the training the person gets to responsibly fly and land that aircraft. Digital marketing, social media sales managers, people in logistics and and project management, these are one of dozens and dozens of jobs and job areas where the skills really are more important than the school. Not to say that you don't want to take a look at people's backgrounds from both directions, but making it an absolute requirement can actually run counter to your interests. And a lot of companies are finding they may be lowering, lowering their legal risk, John, because if you keep going to the same sources for your applicants, and that might be certain colleges where you've had success in the past, you end up with a pretty homogeneous group of people. That's led to legal claims. So there's a nice and interesting silver lining here. By broadening the pool, you actually also broaden and boost your legal defenses. I think about this all the time, Philip, when I walk through the lobby of our building or when I encounter clerks at various stores who seem to be educated, friendly, positive, energetic in a job that, frankly, a lot of us might not want to do. And I think I think you are more capable of things than this, you know, and, and, and I'm not demeaning the work they're doing, but I'm simply saying I see so much potential in some people who have jobs that don't seem to tap that potential, you know. Yeah, that's actually the kind of the flip of this coin, but but it sort of in a way supports this notion of looking at people in a different way. Yeah, that is to say, many people without college degrees may have gotten the job, but don't have the ability to advance because of, uh, in essence, a prejudice against them based on educational attainment. We are helping uh, a retail company in New Mexico. They had a college degree requirement for all the retail people of every level, John, and. Uh, the fact was uh, non-Hispanic whites in New Mexico uh, graduated college at much higher rates. So Native Americans, for example, uh, only 10% of the Native American community had graduated a four-year college. You can imagine uh, the demographics at that company, and the owner said, I have a much more diverse and, in some cases, much more focused, uh, empowered, and engage the workforce now that I drop the requirement, both for first-timers, John, and to your point, for promotions. Philip Weiss is the president of Seifarth at Work, S-E-Y, SeifarthAtWork.com. Nice to talk to you today, Philip. Thanks. Thanks. It's a pleasure, John. Let's talk to Matt Schultz, the chief credit analyst at LendingTree.com. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about real estate and purchasing it and how you maybe divide that up. What's your overarching theme here? What are you thinking about? 
Um, well, in terms of real estate, I think that, that you know, it's, it's you know, the old saying is it's location, location, location. I mean, it's such, especially in a time where um, where mortgage rates are higher and that sort of thing, it's, it's such an important thing. Uh, location is for sure. I was thinking, though, about how people finance it or afford it. I'm thinking about couples, uh, married or otherwise. Um, are there any rules of the road in terms of all of that? Well, when it comes to financing, um, when it comes to financing a home, it's um, obviously if you can, as as a married guy who owns a house, it certainly can help to uh, to have multiple people on that mortgage and to um, and to to be able to split that cost, and because that can help you with things such as down payments and that sort of thing. So it's it's a really important thing. Talk to me about Valentine's Day on Valentine's Day. How much do people spend? Do we spend too much? It's not like, oh, Halloween or Christmas, right? Valentine's Day is way down on the pecking order, is it not? It is, but it's still an important thing, and there's an awful lot of pressure when it comes to relationships um, uh, on Valentine's Day. And we found that, uh, that those in a relationship are planning to spend a little less than $200 on their significant other this Valentine's Day. So it's a, it's a good amount of money for sure. I, I'm just going to guess that that's men spending on women more than women spending on men. Uh, women more thoughtful, guys feel more pressure on this day. Is there any analysis of that? Yeah, what we found is that that men expect to spend almost three times more <laughs> on their Valentines than women do, and, and some of that's just a pressure thing. But the one another interesting thing that we found was that partners who have only been in a relationship for two years or less spend way more than those who have been in a relationship for a decade or more. So that was that was an interesting thing as well. $187. I guess that would be a card, maybe a small gift or a card and, um, well, maybe a large gift. But if you throw in a meal, uh, you can't get all three of those things for $187 in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. That's that's certainly going to go a whole lot farther in some, uh, in some places than it will in Chicago or in Austin where I am. And But either, either way, it's still real money when you consider how small the financial margin for error is for uh, for a whole lot of Americans these days. Oh, really? $187 is maybe out of the budget for folks, right? It certainly could be, yeah. And what we found is that about a quarter of folks who are going to spend on Valentine's Day say that they may end up taking on credit card debt to do so. And about half of those say that it's going to take them at least two months to pay it off. So that's your, your partner doesn't want you to go into debt to shower them with gifts, probably. So it's it's certainly worth considering that when you're when you're spending. Well, if I that's interesting. What's the average credit card interest rate these days? Twenty percent, nineteen, something like that. It's it's actually a little higher. Our survey found that it's about twenty three percent. So it's it's just off the charts high. All right, so just for numbers' sake, if I spend $200 and put it all on a credit card, 
and don't pay that off in a year, then I rack up $40 of interest onto that $200, right? Give or take a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and, and the problem is that if you are going into debt over credit card debt and, and taking that long to pay that off, there's a good chance that you may be running up other debts as well. And there's the opportunity cost of not being able to save and take advantage of the high yield savings accounts and that sort of thing. So it's, it's a, it's a tough thing. That's interesting uh, point you make. Not only are you paying 20%, say, on the money, 23 24%, but you're losing the opportunity to earn 3 or 4% these days on available cash. So the number is close to 30% if you say, what's the opportunity cost here, right? Yeah, no question. And a- after so many years of basically getting nothing back in savings accounts, the fact that you can get 4% or more back in savings makes it a, a really significant thing. You can get real money back from these savings accounts. And if you haven't shopped around for a, for a new savings account in a while, then, uh, then you're really just leaving money on the table. So maybe Valentine's Day. Maybe you can't get away with this at Christmas or Thanksgiving. I don't know how people leave their lives or lead their lives. Everybody has a different set of priorities. But maybe Valentine's Day should be a cash only, <laughs> a debit card, not a credit card. It needs to be a cash holiday, right? Yeah, or or it can just be a, uh, a stay at home and make a nice uh, home-cooked dinner over candlelight and a bottle of wine instead of going out uh, and, and spending all of that money. I mean, there's there's plenty of creative things that you can do to 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 make an impact on Valentine's Day for sure. You can read more if you just click on LendingTree.com. Matt Schultz is the chief credit analyst there. Nice to talk to you, Matt. Happy cash only Valentine's Day. <laughs> and to you as well. Indeed. It's twelve forty three. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. More business news now. Here is Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. An analysis by self-storage company StorageCafe.com says Chicago's downtown ranks among the best for residential living. The company examined several factors, including living options, safety, and lifestyle amenities. The findings were reported by Axios. 67% of the downtown apartments are considered high-end. 90% of rental buildings offer fitness center access. And there are 11 restaurants and 2.6 theaters per 1,000 downtown residents. Crime has been on the increase, but the analysis shows it's lower than 2016 through 2019. The report comes as the city of Chicago works to increase the number of downtown living spaces. Chicago office workers are spending about $2,400 less per year on food, shopping, and entertainment near the places where they work. And while that's good news for employees, it shows the scope of the economic impact on businesses who rely on that money to stay open. A study conducted by WFH Research says the findings show the financial impact of changing work requirements that began early in the COVID pandemic. More people are working from home. Cranes report Chicago's drop is smaller than other big cities. Workers in New York City are spending about $4,600 less, $4,200 less in Los Angeles, $3,900 less in Atlanta. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Okay, take notes now. Here's the business of food and Steve Alexander.
Thank you, and we're about to get a lesson in the proper way to pronounce an iconic Polish delicacy that Chicago loves. After I tell you that we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. Okay, I'm sure we all know the word spelled P-A-C-Z-K-I <laughs> is magically pronounced Punchki. Oh, well, here to educate us about the proper way to say the word is... This is Dobra Belinsky, the owner of Delightful Pastries. That's over there on Lawrence Avenue in Jefferson Park. That's right. Okay, Dobra, if it isn't punchki, what is it? One punchek. Punchek? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and if, and if I have more than one punchek? Punchki. Polnski? That's correct. You're good. I'm going to make a Polish-American out of you yet. I don't know. All of those consonants are intimidating. Polish grammar is the, is a killer, I'm telling you. And don't be going into delightful pastries and asking for a dozen ponchkis. But there's no S at the end. In the plural word, there's it's ponchki. Okay, and Dobra knows her ponchki. Delightful has been delighting for a long time. In a, a month and a half, it's going to be our 25th anniversary. And she says they have all the varieties you can imagine, all the standards like custard topped and the rose petal and other jellies and some adults only varieties that have alcohol in them we have jameson and chocolate custard we have vodka and vanilla bean custard and we have kentucky moonshine and lemon curd and if you want to have punch key ready and waiting for you for fat tuesday you have to order by the 17th of february and they do a lot more than punch key we also are very well known for our pierogi we make wonderful wonderful pierogi from scratch and the other item that we're known for is our sourdough breads plus cakes and cookies including one special one called the blue line cookie which is a fundraiser for the chicago police memorial foundation that um, helps fallen police officers or the families of police officers that have been shot in the line of duty. Lots going on in Jeff Park at Delightful Pastries. And remember, one is... Ponchek. More than one is... Ponchki. But no S on the end. <laughs> I love Mardi Gras. It's one of my favorite holidays because it's just, it's just a fun holiday, you know? That's the business of food on 720 WGN. 1251. Here's Jim Starwalt. He's the broker owner of... Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate Star Homes. Starhometeam.com is the website. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. I'm excited. The weather's turned already. It's been a been a crazy winter, huh? It has been. I mean, weird in a way. We had a real cold spell in January, but the end of January was good. February so far has been good. Does warmer weather translate in your business to better business? Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we had the uh, the best January that we've we've had in a long time. <clears throat> so we had uh, on our team over forty contracts put together, which typically you know we track that it's usually about uh, about twenty, um, so double. And we're seeing the same thing in February. So it's uh, it's going to be a crazy year again. Tell us about the work you all do. Yeah, you know, we, we help buyers and sellers, obviously. We sell real estate, so we help counsel them. And we really strive to give the Star Home Team experience, which which means that we always put our clients first. So it, it comes right down to the initial interview of what do, they, what do they want to accomplish? You know, are they here for short-term, long-term? Is it uh, an investment purpose? So we really try to – we're matchmakers to find out your, your why – and sometimes we'll advise people that uh, maybe you shouldn't shouldn't buy a house yet. So it uh, it comes down to caring about people. 
You said a common step for those looking to take their partnership to the next level, this would be a couple of people, I presume not married, uh, to the next level is moving in together. Some may even choose to buy a house before sweethearts sign on the dotted line. What? What should they consider? You know, they really have to consider all of the all of the financial and legal aspects. Now, are they going to rent? Are they going to uh, are they going to buy? Um, buying is always always better than than renting, in my opinion, um, financially, just with the tax incentives and the you know the mortgage interest deductions and such. So um, we could get into all the math, but I think that would be would be pretty boring. But they really need to consider. Especially if you're buying a house, you know what if the what if the furnace goes out? Who's going to pay to fix that? Who's how are you going to divide the bills up? Finances are, you know, one of the biggest parts of um, what why it causes breakups. You know, I've got to tell you, a lot of our business is helping people going through a divorce, um, or they bought a house together. It's so sad when you see people bought a house together and they didn't account for everything that's going to happen if they split up. It's very complicated. There's a lot of uh, legal issues as far as how are they going to take title to the property? Are they going to take it as joint tenants where if one of them, um, God forbid, passes away, that it automatically reverts to the other person, or do they want it to go to their family? We have a lot of of people who are in their... Um, late 60s and 70s who have been divorced and they, they both have families and kids and they decide they want to buy a house together and each sell their house and buy one. Well, it depends how they take it. If they take it as, as joint tenants and one passes away, it doesn't matter what your will says. The title and deeds head automatically goes to the other party and your heirs don't see any of that. So there's a lot of legal. I'm thinking, too, of the scenario where a couple maybe that age, because there's a a second chapter for some people, you might be 60, but say a couple that's in their 30s, they're not married, they've moved in together, they buy a house together, and then maybe the thing, the relationship breaks up. I wonder, somebody's going to move out, maybe both of them move out, but how do they account for the sale of the property? Um, do they split it 50-50? What if you said, well, I put in the new furnace? Or what if I keep the house, but you move out, and that person wants their share of the equity in the house down the road? They help pay for the rent for a couple of years while we were a couple. That strikes me as really complicated, but maybe not that uncommon. It's not uncommon at all, but the, the other part is you can't just say, okay, I'll just leave, and you take over the house. You're still going to be on the mortgage. <laughs> who's yeah. you, you you go ahead and sign a quick claim deed and i have no right to the house and i'm still on the mortgage and something happens to you and you quit paying or whatever or i want to i meet somebody new and i want to buy a house my credit's still messed up because i'm still on that mortgage so huh. these discussions have to be have to be had who's going to be paying for the lawn service if, or who's going to cut the grass who's going to do all of these things, you know, you, you fall in love and you have stars and it's Valentine's day and, and that's fantastic, but you really need to sit down with a counselor and, you know, that's what, that's what good real estate agents should do is let's talk about why you're doing this. Are you okay? Let's talk about the bad stuff. Hmm. What happens if you split up? Who, who, like you said, who who gets the tax breaks? Who's going to, uh, who's going to be deducting the, the, mortgage interest and the property taxes off their income. 
You know, you're the rare agent that has described being a realtor as being a counselor. But as I'm thinking back, all these life issues come up. Every time Brenda and I have bought and sold a home, we've done it many times, we're a lovely couple. But I mean, there's a kind of counseling that goes on there about what your priorities are, when and where you're going to move, to say nothing of these financial considerations. I'm out of time, Jim, but it's an interesting thought process. Make sure you go down that road, be you married or otherwise, when you're buying or selling a home, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Jim Starwalt is the broker owner of Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, Star Homes. Visit starhometeam.com.